0: Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of How to Breathe So You Don't Look Fat, a podcast titled after a lesson I was taught at 8 years old. My name is Anna Mansell, and I created this podcast to talk with regular people about the relationship they have with body, self, and food, all in a desperate search to improve my own. Today's guest is Ali Carr, an artist from Sheffield who talks to us about the role her mum played in validating who she is, what getting rid of jeans from her wardrobe is like, and we share the mutual pain at the state of our ageing faces. Bulldog clip at the back of the head, anyone? I hope you enjoy our chat. Ali Carr? We have known each other there and thereabouts for probably coming up 16 years, but obviously we've not spoken for years. Uh, we lost touch. We went off on our separate ways and did our various separate things um, and then reconnected on the power of Instagram, the wonder of Instagram. You are uh, an artist. You work in a broad range of ways in order to tell um and convey the slippery, multifaceted performance of femininity, the contradictions in physical bodily display, and the divergent techniques of hiding in plain sight, being the dazzling spectacle in the spotlight. Uh, you live in Sheffield, you work at the University of Huddersfield, you studied at CalArts in California, and you have a PhD. Uh, your thesis is published by Radcliffe. What's your thesis called again?
1: Viewing Pleasure and Being a Showgirl. How do I look?
0: Yes. <laughs> a lot of your work a lot of your work on Instagram has been exploring some of that, that looking back on uh, a bit of a retrospective almost isn't it uh, yeah. on your work which has been really fascinating so I'll link to Ali's um social media feeds and so on uh, in the show notes but um it's fascinating work I've really enjoyed looking at you or watching you exploring your own work I think has been fascinating but we'll dive straight into the questions because I'm sure your work will feed into the conversation that we're having today anyway um and as usual, I asked you about the first moment that you became aware of your body and how it made you feel. And you said that you remember your dad being disappointed with how you ran when you were on a beach, that you felt like he might have been embarrassed by you.
2: Yeah, I
1: don't think I can say more than that, but, that's, but I have that memory, you know. Yeah, just, just knowing that I'd let him down by not being
0: good at running. It's, but it's so sad is it i mean you say you were six years old at that time and to have to be that uh aware of somebody's emotions or expectation or judgment or whatever at that age that's quite i mean that's really major i think yeah i guess when i look back i mean i'd
1: say approximately six but when i look back i guess the the, the fact is i you know i am really emotional and intuitive so yeah i, I was in tune with someone else's feelings about me you know and knowing that I'd let someone down because of my physique and although I wouldn't I couldn't word it then it's like just a a constellation it's a point in the constellation of my experiences around my body but I guess also the clarity with which knowing you you've you let down your parents because of your physique um enables me to reject that i think that the more that you know i've been able to thread you know it's like i experience i've experienced that emotion as an adult and then you look back and you thread well when did i experience this before and you kind of connect up these these moments these echoes to the point where you can go yeah it's a thing it's a thing you know i mean it's not like a, a perception no No, or it's it's a thing. It wasn't a momentary, like, oh, it may be. It it, it was a thing.
0: Yeah, I think there's something about um, when you look back, I've been writing about it for um, the memoir and picking out all of these moments and recognising, like you say, acknowledging that it was a thing. And then when you start to see the layers, every single little tiny moment that uh, that, uh, in that moment will have been fleeting but it stays on you it you know it, it it's like a, a. I describe it in one way of feeling like a tattooed lady because there is so much of everybody else's comments or thought or judgment or even a look just a passing look recognizing that look of judgment or you know disgust or whatever or, or even positive stuff I very rarely remember those ones <laughs> but it all shapes us doesn't it you also said that you remember being, that you, you said you knew you were the second fattest in the class, which I find a really, that you would be aware of that as well at such a young age. Yeah, and I don't think I
1: thought of it very negatively, but I just knew, actually, no. I mean, I, I think I knew because the, uh, the mum of the other person, I think she talked to my mum, about like the sizing of clothes and stuff
0: for the school uniform right so yeah just a very practical conversation that would make you give you some awareness of it it's it's hard isn't it because I think even just those innocent conversations then give us an awareness that we don't need or want necessarily Or, or maybe maybe we should have some awareness maybe it's not a bad thing it's just our interpretation that makes it bad
1: yeah and I mean, but also, for me, the awareness yeah I don't know when those feelings became painful, but I'd say that maybe the greater pain that I was aware of is knowing that I was quite thick. I was very unacademically gifted, and i was and I was quite bovine, I was a very bovine child where I couldn't basically. I understand myself now as being lost in my own dream world Mm. very connected to my own imagination Mm. and that meant that I was very not socially connected nor connected to the tasks that I was asked to do which meant that you know so when I was five you know I started school we'd have a task to do you know that whatever we were taught and when you finished the task you could play but I never finished the task in time to play Mm-hmm. because and because I could just never finish things so um the pain of having to be in school was so acute that I think any hatred of my body was secondary
2: yeah
0: yeah i wonder if now they would have recognised that you needed teaching in a different way in order to engage and finish the piece of work if you like <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't don't know. But it was one of those things where, like, actually learning to love my brain has been a parallel journey in terms of learning to love my body in the world. Because, you know, like, you know, so I've got a PhD. So doing that involved a lot of dispelling of or really confronting limiting beliefs that I had about myself, knowing how stupid I'd been in school, and so and how unacademically gifted I was, and the education has been easier the higher up I've got.
0: Yeah, it's really cruel language though. Mm. You're describing yourself as thick and stupid is really cruel.
1: I know. I shouldn't, should I? Um, I think it's just knowing that that was what was sticking to me at the time. Yeah, and yeah. and that that you kind of have to name it to. Begin to clean it off, right? You, do you know what I mean? You can't. You kind of have to recognise that stuff sticks to you to, yeah. to to begin to think I don't want it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And if it's a language you've chosen, it's you, you're entitled to call it whatever you want, aren't you? Also? <laughs> <laughs> um something you said as well, which really resonated for me, was the shame of puppy fat. I mean, I hate that term. It's such a derogatory... Again, maybe this is more to do with my association of it, but why are we being told about our puppy fat? Why are people saying, don't worry, it's just puppy fat? You know, that that I still see usually women prodding their kids in the swimsuits on the beach, you know, put that away or whatever it might be. But it's so... It's so damaging. Yeah. The shame around puppy fat for me, because then translated from being shame about puppy fat to shame about um, baby weight. Don't worry, you'll lose that. You know, it will be gone within a year or so. Mm. Uh, the, the baby weight, get, there's always a, been a reason for it. It's never mm. been my body. There has always been a reason for it. Mm. You know? I find that really distressing. And then you said that because of that shame, you started, um, you increased the amount of exercise you did. Um, and quite frequently f- were feeling light-headed and fainting.:
1: Yeah, I was 13, and I mean like, yeah, I just decided to weigh less and take up less space. So I remember asking my mom to make me the, a really minimal lunch, so I would have some bread with butter on it, no filling, and an apple. And then I would give away one component of that per day. So that would be my packed lunch. And so I'd eat only half of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I would really try to minimise, I don't know if I skipped breakfast, I think I did. And then I really tried to minimise my dinner. And uh, I did lose a lot of weight and I increased my exercise. I remember being on my bike and fainting one day. Um, And, yes teachers noticed and and I, I kind of just grew out of that moment but in a way that moment was so obsessive it was a little bit like a little glimpse of what life could be like if I stayed like it and I kind of thought nah nah I mean I went to a girls school and um eating problems were rife so I would learned that behavior that was learned behavior
2: yeah
1: um you know where that kind of like fear of food was really pervasive um and then I thought nah and I'm quite like um I mean there have been times in my life where I've weighed myself a lot but I know that if if I weigh myself once it's like a slippery slope I'm going to weigh myself again so it's like I just have to take and it's like what 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 good is that information what what good does it do knowing how much you weigh well you're the only reason why you'd want to know your weight is to berate yourself so take all of that out of the equation and just don't weigh yourself and then you're good so yeah it kind of it, yeah, it didn't linger you know my thir- that that moment was use- was a useful like this is as, this is as bad as it can be and
0: yeah you were lucky that it didn't linger i wonder how much of that is to do with that connection you have to who you are even if you didn't have the language to uh, explain that perhaps back then Um, because for most people that is the beginning of a much longer slippery slope isn't it Mm. especially when you've got those external influences at school as well my mum had a really tricky relationship with her
1: body which Mm. i really really knew about but of all the things, and so everything that I've talked about, to counter that, um, my mum did a really, really good job of validating me. It was a bit like everything in the entire world was against me, and I wore everything so heavily. Everything would was like such a heavy rain, you know, like a really heavy coat. Mm-hmm. Um, the perceptions of others, just other people's emotions, expectations, also just just actually being aware you know I grew up in the 80s and being aware of the negative politics you know I had a real awareness of a lack of fairness yeah culturally and that hurt like I've just been so porous to these things but you know I'm an only child and I had a mum until I was 20 and in a way you know she actually expressed to me and it's pretty emotional but she actually expressed to me that I was her life's work Mm. and that like she's considered like putting someone in the world who was stable as her work
2: right and
1: so she worked very hard to validate me challenge me yeah but but validate me so not validate me without qualification but it was a bit like I learned to know I had something to say and something to do and a mission to be on because when I exposed a bit of that or it came out my mum was really keen to validate it so in terms of like how did I not stay in that very negative relationship with food Mm. um it was just conversations with my mum you know that she validated my body and who I was and you know she just worked really hard at that and like when I was a teenager rejected it so much I was so embarrassed because we were so close I had to really push her away yeah i was so embarrassed about that level of like like love and validation it was so so like um yeah just embarrassing to me as a teenager but so formative
0: so yeah she's she's uh an incredible um I can't think of the the words, which is good for a writer, but, um, <laughs> you know, the combination of you and your mum, the teamwork yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. is incredible. And, um, and so un- unusual, particularly in the 80s, I think for somebody to be as aware of what they're doing, the role real, real and responsibility they have um, in not passing on some of their own neurosis I mean some of it happens organically doesn't it some of it you cannot help because you are you'll have observed thing observed things yeah Uh, but yeah what an incredible woman to have been able to have that level of insight were you quite similar then
1: physically no no and she was I mean like I've got to qualify she was hilarious like for example she'd say to me because I have biggish thighs and she had spindly legs so she'd go, oh, go on, show us your cellulite. <laughs> She's like, I've never seen it. Come on, show us your cellulite. And then the other thing is, you know, when I was a little girl and I, and I said the word tits, my mum was like, don't call them tits. Eh? I can't remember what word she told. I think she said, I had to say bosoms, but whatever it was, she was really like, you can't say that, right? And then when I was a teenager and it became clear I wasn't as busty as her because she was very heavy on top and then very slim on the bottom, um and I'm not like that. Um the reverse. And so my mum said to me, Oh, you can't call them bosoms, they're tits, because <laughs> they were so small. <laughs> but they were so she was like she was completely irreverent and funny and just laughing. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and like but in a way, when she did laugh at me, it made me realize that you can uh, that's okay if, if it's if it's with the right intention there was no malice around it it was just having a laugh yeah. and it's certainly in the constellation of experiences you get and the way that you're seen by other people it certainly gave me the experience that somebody talking about your body can be non-violent okay and it can just be hilarious like look what bodies we've landed in do you know what I mean they're <laughs> like isn't that hilarious and yeah.
0: um, it's, I think that there's something about that distinction, isn't there, between body and self as well and, and and maybe that's how that conversation directed you and 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 possibly also you know influenced your thinking later your thinking later on with your work and so on as well. the differences between those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely feel disconnected from my body. Um, it, it feels like something other to me. it doesn't it, it doesn't feel like me. I don't know Mm. if that's a a bad thing or not really you said that in your 20s you were in an adult dancing class and someone said to you that uh, you had uh, the right body size not too thin or too fat you should absolutely stay the way you were yeah it's helpful isn't it
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) it is yeah I mean like yeah not yeah it's that thing of like actually apart from my mum because in a way the relationship with my mum meant that Everything was in there. Everything was in the mix. All, all of the acceptance, all of the understanding. It's like, in a way, um, this is a really interesting thing as an adult, you know, because basically she validated my, me physically, but she knew of my complexity. So she, you know, so she saw the complexity. My body was never just my body. And actually, it's really interesting. You know, she was um, she was a Christian, so she had, it's, it's not my cup of tea, but, you know... Um, she 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 would say things like because our bodies are only a vehicle for our soul mm-hmm. but then she was hilarious because she could just turn on a dime she would go but you can dress nice do you know what I mean <laughs> you can't dress up nice so she was like that she was like she was both superficial and deep so she recognized complexity and the enjoyment of the of looks of superficial but yeah when people say casual things I think it's the casual things the fleeting moments that have done more damage to me because they don't, it, even the compliments don't take into account your complexity. And therefore, it's very difficult to just clean that off. I find it, I find they linger longer. Yeah. Even if they're, oh, well, they're complimentary. I don't know. I think that, yeah, a straight compliment, great, keep them coming. <laughs> but sometimes things like that with qualifications, you know what I mean? Like, stay like that. It's an instruction, and you're like, you don't know what to do with that you're like well
0: I can't I can't make promises mate you know I'm doing my best
2: but
0: no and funnily enough though I don't I'm I, I'm not a fan of a compliment any more than I am of a negative uh uh comment I I, ju- I just don't want it I don't want any of them yeah I know what you mean but I kind of I kind of
1: crave compliments in a way yeah. in part because i don't have my mum now i don't know who is qualified to say that i look good but the fact that i don't know who can say that i look good means that i'm craving it and yeah. that i and the other thing is is that i am very in a way i'm quite constructed you know like physically i'm quite you know in terms of my look in terms of how i present uh that, yeah, it's a construction. And I kind of do want some validation around that. I mean, I do like it when people say to me, love your look. And yeah. I do get that sometimes. And I think, there you go. You, <laughs> saw, you saw what I've done and you liked it. Thanks. You know, because it's a bit like, it's just like, you know, acknowledgement of, uh, it's like acknowledgement of, of of my time. You know, I put a bit of effort in. and then And then if yeah. someone says, you look good, I go, thanks, love
0: yeah Thanks I'll take time. that <laughs> <laughs> interesting isn't it oh something else that you'd said that I found really frustrating on your behalf not that you need me to particularly um but was that you were when you were on uh, in California you put on some weight and someone told you that you your artwork functioned better when you were fat yeah that is
1: actually the toughest thing ever to hear because <clears throat> it's actually in terms of like my own choice of being of how to do my body that is the that was the I've been able to get rid of that the least yeah. you know what I mean like and so it's meant that you know like, like I say sometimes I've you know I, I cycle uh there was a moment in time where cycling was my only mode of transport. So I cycled everywhere. Mm. And um and I kind of became like size twelve for a moment there. Mm. Um but rather than staying like that, I kind of made an effort to not be a size twelve anymore. It's like I cycled less. Do you know what I mean? Like I actually and then I and then I went to a size 14. It was a bit like ah I'm back can say what I want to say it was a bit like this idea of yeah if I'm gonna have this art practice then I kind of need to make sure I'm a size 14 or above or else it won't land and that is it it is disempowering because that's someone else's view of you Mm. um and but now I think I've just about like managed to free myself of that however what's happened is a little switcheroo is coming in and I don't and I just need to not Make this an equivalence, but part of me thinks you know, being forty-two, now I'm an aging body, so I don't need to be a fat body because I've got age coming in. But I mean, it's just one of those things. Where you're like, I mean, but that's the thing is that what I'm dealing with, what I'm interested in saying in my artwork is that. Oh, what am I interested in saying in my artwork? I can't remember now. It's about certainly it's about, it's about bodies. Certainly about having a woman's body um, and some of the things around that. And, it, and it's a bit like saying if you don't have a body that is commonly held up as the standard, then what do you do? And how do you negotiate your own body? How do you, how do you enjoy women's images of other people? How do you make sense of yourself as an image? All of these kind of things. And, yeah, I have internalised this sense that it lands better if I'm bigger. Uh, But that falls into the trap that I'm talking about.
2: Yeah.
0: So it is a bit tricky. (laughs) It's really tricky. And the ageing thing, I completely, um, yeah, like physically my body doesn't feel like it looks any different, particularly now than it did five, 10 years ago. Um, But my face does. And my face, I'm really aware of my face now starting to look like I'm aging. And I'm finding that really hard because I, like I don't, I have no problem with what people choose to do with their own bodies and faces, so long as the motivation for that is their own but then how do you distinguish between somebody's motivation to let's say get Botox how do you distinguish whether that's their motivation to make them feel better or their motivation to make them feel better because of external influences and you can't really separate those um I'm d- always deeply aware of the, the sort of the line across my forehead starting to get deeper and I'm you know I'm have I've got Resting bitch face or resting worried face. (laughs) So it's it's hard. Yeah,
1: no. And, you know, um, I tell you something that my mum said years ago, like when I was a teenager, because she was, yeah, she was talking about, you know, this face and body stuff. And she was saying to me, at a certain age, a woman has to choose between her face and her body. (laughs) (laughs) And so she was talking about being 40 plus, right? And she had chosen her face. But that but I must have been about 15 and I thought, oh, I'm choosing my face. I'm choosing my face. <laughs> so it meant that like since then I've always used like the best skin products I can. You know, whatever it is that my budget is. I'm I'm doing the research and getting the best. And um, I mean, not that I think that um not aging. Is down to that, but it, it's a factor. Mm. Now, also, my my dad doesn't look bad for his age, and and mum when she died also was aging well. So I've I've inherited, you know, I'm I'm doing all right. Yeah. Um, but like now, living on Zoom, living online means that I am looking at my face all the time. Like so, to have so like when you are talking about having a resting bitch face, you know that thing when when I'm online and I'm talking, perhaps to students, I see myself reacting to them talking so now I know about my resting bitch face <laughs> and so I make an intervention because I'm looking and I'm like looking at myself going oh is that your serious listening face that's <laughs> that's way too much you know what I mean like lighten the mood lighten the mood and then I'm like I'm trying to course correct what my face is doing as I'm doing it whereas ordinarily I have no idea what I look like I mean I know that I don't have a poker face because people can read it really well right? Yeah. And then and then yeah so I'm looking at my face all the time so I've become hyper aware of my face again and then Mm i know noticed my neck Mm -hmm. oh so my face is doing all right but my neck isn't and it's interesting you should say about Botox because I was said to Greg the other day I think I think I would intervene I I would like have a treatment on my neck if I had enough money but you know I mean like it's a fear now. It's a fear. I can see my necks dangling like a wattle, like a turkey wattle. That's what's happening. <laughs> turkey wattle, it's just beginning. And then uh, I started to research. So basically I used Dicem products and DICM, um have this very expensive neck cream. So I showed my other half. He, Greg is actually, my other half is a cancer researcher. So he knows everything about science yeah. in short. And all of the face products that I use involve science-ish language, which he is incredibly critical of because he's like, peptides are a thing in your skin. You can't, you can't put a peptide on top of your skin and it get in there. It doesn't work like that. And I'm like, listen, you don't make skin products. They're not talking literal science. They're just telling me enough to buy it. Yes. and it,
0: <laughs> Marketing science. It's a very different kind of science. <laughs> yes.
1: All I need to know is it works. And it works. Anyway, he's banned me from buying this neck cream because the language is so outrageous. So then I'm like, oh, if I can't get the £60 neck cream and I am aging on my neck, what am I going to do? So I've, I've now bought silicone. <laughs> Silicone that I sleep in. So it's a sticker you stick onto your neck, and then you sleep in it.
0: I mean, it's that
1: or a a, a polar neck, isn't it, for the rest of your life? <laughs> That's not going to happen. So <laughs> it's silicone. It's silicone stickers.
0: Is it working?
1: Uh, I've only done it a day. Oh, the other thing is I've got guasha, guasha face, guasa face stone. So I've been massaging my face. Yeah. And, I've, and I'm up to eight steps of my skincare. However, I just want to add that, honestly, I do actually enjoy looking after my face. It, yeah. It's both an obsession and a pleasure. So do you know what I mean? Like try not to think that I'm completely messed up. Although the neck, honestly, I was, I, honestly, I do worry about my neck now. It is like a set of thoughts. And I do say to Greg, now I know my neck is aging and it's ugly. It is on my mind. And I'm like, he laughs and I'm like, no 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 it's a worry you know what I mean it's becoming an anxiety I've got a neck anxiety now and then I'm starting telling other friends you know I'm worried about my neck I can't believe I'm saying this but I've got this <laughs> neck worry and they're like well basically you can't talk about worrying about your neck
0: nobody, nobody gives a shit and you're like but I'm worried about my neck but <laughs> nobody you know, can you know on zoom your neck looks completely fine to me. <laughs> so, given that we're living our life on the internet, I wouldn't worry. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, and uh, and honestly, I do. I think really what I'm talking about is d- a displaced anxiety. Do you know what I mean? Like often, actually, it's a range of other things going on. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not entirely sure my neck worry is about my neck. I actually think it's it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a holding it's a holding point. Yeah, a range of anxieties and feelings of things being out of control.
2: Yes,
0: although I am thinking I might grow my hair so that I can then get a fringe to cover my forehead. So Uh... (laughs) just cheat around my whole face that way. The more hair I have, the more I can hide the various bits behind it. No,
1: no, 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 no. (laughs) Now I've said, now I've said, now I have my little neck rant. Yeah. To completely Turn, you know, like going the other direction. No, get your face out. It's all <laughs> alright. Looks good. You know, what I mean your face looks good, but I like seeing people's faces and it is how we express ourselves. And I don't want Botox. I do want a moving around face.
0: Yeah, it's part it's part of us, isn't it? I remember somebody stopping me in the street that I worked with and they stopped me. I was walking away from a meeting and they'd been walking towards me and they'd had to stop because they hadn't, they thought, oh, that looks a bit like Anna, but she's a lot grumpier. And then when they stopped me, my face lit up because I was really pleased to see them. And they were like, no, it is you. You are inside there. <laughs> and I often remember you just saying, oh, it just, just looks just like Anna, but grumpy. I think that's awful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's talk about, uh... Triggers that make you feel negatively towards your body, not your neck. We've, we've moved past that. You say trousers. Oh yeah, I can't wear trousers. <laughs> I mean, like
1: <laughs> oh, that sounds. <laughs> well, I did the Marie Kondo method, and and the truth is is that none of my trousers sparked joy, and then <laughs> and so I just thought, fuck them. They're all gone. <laughs> out of here yeah yeah and and the thing is is that you know like and one of the podcasts I was listening to of yours someone was talking about jeans and you know the different sizes and and like just the pain of wearing jeans and I thought yeah you've made my point for me exactly <laughs> there's well, there's too much material there's too much material between your legs there's mm-hmm. too many fastenings it's all dependent I mean like I don't know just just that they're, they're just not designed to feel comfortable no and 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 so yeah gone but I never saw a payoff for I never saw a, wearing trousers I never saw a positive payoff you know I didn't look at myself in trousers and go oh I fancy you I just think <laughs> get them off you know I my mean? like you know when you get home and you just think oh, I'm taking my trousers off
0: you know to get comfortable and yeah. then you think well if you have to think like that don't wear them yeah, but that's true of bras. And if I didn't wear a bras, my a bras, I'd just wear the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well you see the thing is, is also talking about lockdown,
1: I stopped wearing I just went to sports bras and I remember saying to friends, you know, like about two months in from lockdown, do you think you'll ever go back to bras? Well, I've i I've quit underwire bras. I've I've chucked them out.
2: Yeah. yeah gone.
1: So yeah, so it's either sports bras or yeah. soft bras, soft cups. That's
0: it. There's something. I mean, you know, aging has its challenges, as we, as we all know. But there is something beautiful about getting slightly older and thinking you no longer have to wear, uh, uh, an underwire, and you can get away with an elasticated waist. These are things <laughs> when we're younger we've avoided. You don't want an elasticated waist when you're in your twenties. But now I'm 43. I'm all over them. Okay. Well, speak, speak, speak for yourself. Come <laughs>
1: you're 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 on your own there I mean I know I do have a pair of tracksuit bottoms I'm not gonna lie I do own them
2: yeah
1: but if I wear them too much it impacts my sense of self right so like like I say I have to wear dresses around the house and then basically I'll put my (laughs) this is so ridiculous I have to dress up to be at home to feel like me yeah but then in the evening, when it comes to cooking, that's when I take off my nice clothes, I put my tracksuit bottoms on in order to cook and watch telly. Yeah. But before then, I'm in nice clothes.
0: I have to say there is something, I mean, arguably not today, but um, quite often if I'm doing something that I feel intimidated by... Um, then I definitely need to put on a certain kind of clothing and certain makeup and certain jewellery to feel like I can then take it on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, there's definitely something in that. But, but I, the other thing I find interesting is I go through phases and at the moment I'm not feeling comfortable in a dress. I feel like it's too girly for me, which is a nonsense saying. But I don't know, there's something about it that doesn't feel quite right. I know what
1: you're saying uh but basically like so basically I do think dresses are a thing that they have got a it's like each dress is a persona
2: mm-hmm. a
1: personality because there's so um the shape and you, you've got you've basically got shape and there's all different kinds of shapes and then you've got pattern and so that is a strong thing to take on But I kind of feel like, yeah, I'm up to it. I can wear dresses. It's like that's that's my life's work, you know. Like I can do that. I can take on the dress persona. And the thing is that I really miss about, you know, life outside is that, you know, I put myself together. Like I say, I'm constructed, you know, I wear dresses, and when I enter public spaces, you get that like biofeedback. You kind of know how you land in the room yeah. and every once in a while I can feel that and it sounds terrible and <laughs> um, I can feel that I kind of intimidate yeah and that um because of that level of like performance needed to wear the dress to to look a certain way um yeah every once in a while you can intimidate and
0: uh I quite like that Do you think that's a gender thing? Do you think that's to do with how often we feel that we don't intimidate or how often we might maybe feel invisible even?
1: Uh, Yes, I think that
0: I have known that one
1: strategy of taking up space and intimidating is through the visual. Yeah. And so it's a bit like when you can key into that, then you can use it and go, yeah, I'm going to be that." Yeah. And And in a way, so what I'm talking about is being interested in claiming that for oneself, even while one is not conventionally um, within the bounds of a of of kind of conventional sizing or looks.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I need to get my dresses out more and, and stand tall, don't I? <laughs> well I'm I'm not going to
1: suggest that it's the right thing you know like everyone does their thing you know I look at I look at some people and they just can wear sharp suits or t-shirts or you know what I mean like I love other people's looks you yeah. know I'm not like I don't look at people and go do you know what you need <laughs> a vintage inflected a flippy dress uh with a pair of boots because that's that's what I do. Do you know what I mean? Like no one else needs to do it because I, I do that. And the reason why I do that is because that look works for me. It's it's in accordance with the things I'm thinking about, the things I research, but also you know my legs which are quite good, and my uh, and you know like my forearms and my lower legs are rather good. Yeah. So dresses work really well with with displaying what what's good on me. Yeah. Um, and then the bits that are built bigger are covered up by a lovely fabric so win-win a lovely fabric that is more forgiving
0: than a pair of jeans so depending on what's today's fabric. I'm very much enjoying today's fabric it's a shame we haven't got visuals on the uh, yeah. <laughs> on the podcast but let me tell you it's lovely um all right let's move on to food you say that you're committed to trusting that what you want to eat is what you should eat which is effectively the intuitive eating uh, concept isn 't it um, oh i hadn 't heard of that i didn 't know it was a thing, but that eating is basically the idea that you listen to what your body wants and needs at any given time and you give it that and and that the idea being that. That might on one occasion be a chocolate biscuit or a bit of ice cream you mentioned, and in other times it might be some pasta or it might be some salad or it might be something really delicious and nutritious. But the the point of it is that you're listening and trusting that your body's telling you what it needs. Yeah, I do that. Yeah. Yeah. Have you always done that?
1: Maybe. I mean, I guess, uh, Mm. yeah, yeah, try to. Uh, I think it's that thing of thinking to yourself I mean I guess in all matters the 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 dialogue I have with myself is who has authority over me Mm -hmm. you know and so you know who has who has the authority to belittle me who has the authority to make me feel small or wrong or inaccurate and you investigate that and ultimately my my conclusion is always well no one Mm. so so you know if you push out all of the um, messages that have accumulated and you get rid of all of them and you think, well, I get to decide what I eat I get to uh, decide what I'm gonna wear I get to decide the course of my life I get to decide and as soon you know it's like in a way you you have to commit to that on the small scale and on the large scale that you know you're you're in control of your own uh, life destiny And, and you know that's that's autonomy and and really committing to your own autonomy means that if you want to eat some ice cream you've got to eat the ice cream and and you know like there are periods in my life when I need to eat things that are bad for me and and I don't and I try not to think of that as I try not to add any judgment to that. It's just that sometimes comfort food is absolutely what you need because you need comforting. And if you can't, you know what I mean? Like, if if you don't have enough comfort in your life, comfort food is a really nice thing, you know? And why limit your pleasure? Why think to yourself, I'm getting this pleasure that I, I need pleasure, I need comforting, I need some soothing, and so I'm going to, and I want to eat more than is an adequate portion. I want to eat a bit more. Mm. And I do it because I've made that, you know what I mean? I, I, I just stay connected to that decision-making process. Yeah. And then there are times when you think to yourself, the, mo- the maximum amount of fun in my life right now is cycling.
2: Mm.
1: And therefore, I have to, when I cycle more, I have to think about the regularity of foods that I eat and... the the, how the food is going to input my ride you know how I'm going to access that energy as fast as possible or in the time frame you know what I mean so when I was riding more I was always I always had snacks on me because I didn't want to like feel yeah lightheaded um so so yeah you kind of you investigate food in terms of what you need in life and I'm not going to uh judge myself
2: for that.
0: No, it's interesting because you talked about um, the kind of uh, how we envision food and how problematic that is um, and referencing things like clean eating or veganism or whatever it might be. And, of course, then I opened this part of the conversation by saying, oh, so you're intuitive eating. So I've given it another label, which is... It's all right. <laughs> uh, uh, it's unhelpful, isn't it? Because it's, um, I mean, maybe the rise of intuitive eating... Uh, and the conversation around it is as part of society's wider sort of desire to get rid of um, the diet culture or to challenge diet culture and all of that so maybe that's what, why it's useful but but actually ultimately we're just if we're hungry we need to eat and yeah to- and yeah but i mean the thing is is that we can weaponize anything and
1: i think that it's it's recognizing that you know like i think that there are points in my life when i've weaponized wanting to comfort food eat, eat comfort eat mm. because um you know like how can i put it i've let myself off too much you know what i mean i haven't held myself accountable in some ways mm. um and i said th- yeah i just know that you can weaponize things and i can see that other people in t- as soon as you have a conversation in which you talk about like body positivity or clean eating or, you know, all of these things, they get ramped up so quickly and it becomes toxic. So it might be mm. trying to be in dialogue or challenge what is toxic. Mm. But when does it become toxic in itself? Well, very quickly, actually. Yeah. Um, I think that the only way of not weaponizing these things is to recognize that. Being a body uh, is experiential, and you just have to be in your body and recognize that any any time that you kind of give testimony to that experience, like verbalize it or put it into language, you're moving away from that experience of, of, of being in the body. So, uh, yeah. So I mean, I I try not I try not to do it, but then I'm so trying to not weaponize it that I also want to give some kind of testimony to my friends or communities a little bit to help validate other people in their journeys so I mean like we have to well we don't have to but I think it is helpful to talk about these things but recognizing that as soon as we talk about it we start to fall into the trap of being the problem as well yeah absolutely yeah so you know these things are tricky I
0: should probably cancel the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, you know, the point is, is that there's a lot of rationalizing that we have to do. And what's interesting about your podcast is talking about um, the fine line. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a bit like, it's walking the tightrope. Do you know what I mean? Like what's come up in the podcast is the idea of being fat and not being attractive, but then also being accepting and feeling attractive. But actually all of these things, they're, they're all language and it's all either side of that fine line, you yeah. know, and nothing's changed in your body. No. It's just how you've conceived of it, you've, how you've conceptualised it and talked about it. Yeah. And the fine line is, is the walk of just being present in the body and uh trying to be okay with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, I agree. I think, um, I mean, certainly, you know, with every conversation I have, I'm getting new perspective. And it's, it was interesting to me that during the few weeks when I wasn't recording conversations with people, my experience and my relationship with body and self and food was slightly more challenging than it is now that I'm having these conversations again uh um, it's yeah. tricky isn't it it's tricky it would be great to get to a point i mean i love doing this podcast but it would be great to get to a point where none of it matters we were talking about the difference between uh how you feel self-confidence wise and then self-esteem wise um the other thing you said about was uh having the, and you've just mentioned it previously about who has the authority to tell you that you're beautiful or physically attractive and for you to believe them and I find that interesting in the, in itself because do we need this external validation and arguably you know we do to a certain extent there's a whole thing around attraction isn't there there needs to be some sort of attraction for human beings to continue to survive so there is something about needing to feel that validation yet maybe because of the way it has been Presented for so many of us for for so long, it doesn't feel like a safe, comfortable thing. It doesn't. It feels it's been weaponized. I suppose, like you were saying earlier, I suppose I just find that whole thing around that whole conversation around what we need versus what we want complex. I'd like very much not to have to care what anybody thought, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, it. I think it's a a particular like kink of mine it's it, it's partly it's sort of like what i need and it makes me vulnerable saying that i actually and need and i'm invested in um compliments about my physical attractiveness but i kind of do need it in part because i you know i, I put myself together that way mm. um, but then in another way and this this is yeah it's it's tricky but basically not having a mum you know like I lost her when I was 20 but actually she started getting ill when I was 16 so I kind of yeah I've lived my adult life um, without a female role model and uh, I also became very distanced from my wider family um, so that I only have a one relationship an ongoing relationship with a family member um but the others are much more distant um yeah kind of cut off in a way Mm. and and I don't have any siblings and I don't have since I was 20 there's been no woman in my life Mm. and you know the amazing thing was how much my mum validated me when she was around which I am forever grateful and so much Much of what she put into me, I'm still drawing on now, and is incredibly grounding and important. But to have that and to lose
0: that
1: is tough. And it's this bio-echo. Do you know what I mean? Like, I like I say, like my mum was able to laugh at my body with full acceptance and laugh and to see me in my complexity. So to have the gift of that and then to not have it is has been yeah very tough. and so when I say this question and it's already come up already, you know I, I, I investigate this this issue of like who has authority over me? Well no one has authority over me, but the pain of that recognition and doing that work is nobody there is no voice out there that I believe Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that no one can say to me in a believable way that I'm beautiful. Yeah. Because the one voice that I had that had that authority isn't here anymore. Yeah. So that is something that I crave. And it's also, you know, again, I've, I've made this link with intelligence. Nobody can say I'm smart. It's not, there's nobody can say, that I'm smart and I believe them. However, that does not stop me from working really, really hard to really think, no, but who? No, but who can I ask? No, but who can, who can I ask that I'm beautiful? Who can I ask that I'm smart? And yeah. I mean, like, it makes me... I don't know what it makes me. It makes me a nightmare of a friend. It makes me a needy, vulnerable child woman to walk through life with the constant question on her lips which she either verbalizes or just <laughs> thinks but doesn't say and that is how do I look and am I doing all right and the reason why my book is called how do I look and my thesis it was called how do I look is because this is uh this is the big question in my life yeah and I was flirting with my own experience I don't I don't use the terms in that way yeah But that's a really important question. How do I look? And like a friend of mine that I thought was really hilarious because I do these performances sometimes where I do daft things in front of audiences. Um, And I frequently will get a friend to like, you know, when I'm in my outfit, I've got my makeup on, I'm just about to go do something ridiculous. (laughs) And I'll turn to a friend and like I did this years ago, I turned to a friend and went, how do I look? She went, "Ah, that's the name of your PhD. And I was like,
2: "Uh, yeah, but really, how do I look?
1: How do I look? Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of the time this is unweaponized. This is a genuine inquiry of I am a social being.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is are my intentions matching the impact I have? Am I authoring what I need to author in this moment? Am I showing up who I need to be? Mm-hmm. This is my genuine inquiry.
2: Yeah.
1: But it can become weaponized. Yeah. You know, as in
0: like it can become needy. Um yeah. And I, I do think so. there's a I, I do think there's a lot to be said. I mean I I in a very in very different circumstances, but I miss that having that strong female presence. Um there is something about that maternal connection. Um and it doesn't have to be uh, a biological maternal connection necessarily, but I think there is something about a maternal connection that is so incredibly powerful that when it's gone, I mean, you know, my mum, I don't, I'm not sure I would ever say she particularly validated me really. I mean, when I got my first book deal, it was, well, is it, is it going to be a, is it going to be a real book because I only like real books as in is it going to be paperback because it wasn't valid it didn't take the same amount of time to write a digital <laughs> book as it does a real one um and she you know she obviously knew that it it, it does take the same amount of time but there what there, I wouldn't there wasn't like huge congratulations occasionally she might whisper that she was proud but it wasn't a, there wasn't huge amounts of validation and yet I still seek that and I still really miss that maternal connection. And I, I, I don't know if it's the same for men who lose their mothers as well, but um, yeah, or, or who are without a, a maternal sort of influence. I think there is something quite significant in that. We need that maternal influence in some way. And it's really hard because then also when yours has gone... I'm very conscious of not wanting to project that onto another woman. I mean, you could never, obviously, you're never going to be able to replace your own mother. But it be very easy to gravitate towards certain women in order to try and seek out and replace. Oh yeah, no, I do that. Yeah, oh, and then, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's not—it's—it's it's a little unfair on the women, isn't it? <laughs> Demanding something of them that that
1: they can't give. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: like in a way, um,
1: yeah. It's through education that I, I've met mentors, and I have met mentors. But I think, yeah, it happens less now. Yeah, I mean, like I did, I did kind of have a lot of uh, surrogate mums. Yeah, um, and that's inappropriate imp- in a in a dynamic where they're they're your teacher and you're a student.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. It's different. I mean, it, you were twenty. That's the very you're still a young person, there's still an awful lot of learning uh, and growing to be done. Um, That's not to say that, I mean, I was 40, so it's not to say that it's any less painful, but there are certainly, you know, there are certain key life moments that I had been through with her there. So the experience is very different. But yeah, I mean, you know, mothers or maternal influences are powerful. And what about young people? You work with young people, obviously, um, the challenges that they face today. I mean, you have talked about the generation, this generation having so much that they need to change in terms of systemic injustice and environmental crisis and all the rest of it. But what are the things, particularly when it comes to body and self, that, that concern you or that you want them to be mindful of, do you think?
1: I don't know, really. I don't know that I can answer that because they are growing up digital natives. And as we're not digital natives, we're really quick to see how time in the digital sphere is negatively impacting them. Mm -hmm. But I think we've got to listen to what they say their concerns are and support that. Yeah. And also that, to recognise that this generation are going to come up with answers. And the last thing that they need is my anxieties. And that the work to be done is to validate them as they march towards the answers, to say, that's really good, how do you need help? You know, what do you need from me? When I now work with students, so I'm a lecturer and I, you know, I teach contemporary art and, but I also, I volunteer with a young person. I, I'm an independent visitor, which means I have a young person that I meet up with for dates. And I, it's not a mentor thing. It's just a friendship thing. Yeah. You know, I think that in both scenarios, I just think you've got to, you've got to start from the standpoint that they know who they want to be. And they know already and all you're doing is accepting, seeing, acknowledging and uh, validating and giving space for that. You know, that that the more that people might not have had that in their lives, the more radical a gift that is. And to show up in a relationship with a young person with no agenda and no expectations other than to see, to listen to accept and say that's good that yeah do that that's that that's a that's that's the work that I know I need to do and in saying that any work that needs to be done that is deeper than that I have to do that on myself because only if somebody I am in a mentoring or teaching or whatever scenario If they want to ask me about how I do these things, then I have a language to answer those questions because I'm doing that work with myself. But not to bring that language into the scenario too soon when those questions or that curiosity isn't there. Because like we've said, that's a fast track to imprinting on somebody, uh, a set of negotiations that they're going to be having to unpack in years to come about their own bodies or their own choices in life or their sexuality or all these kind of things All all of these things are uh sticky uh things that live on the surface of the body and if you don't want if you recognize there's a, an implicit violence in that then you d-
0: you don't enact that mm. yeah a good, a good advice to be applied to all people not just young people really isn't it That nurturing and seeing and um giving space for people to be I think it's a pretty good place to wrap it up Ali (laughs) thank you so much it's been really really lovely chatting to you and we shouldn't probably leave it 15 years. well I mean we could do what we like but I'd like not to leave it 15 years (laughs) Well, uh, I'm desperate to come swim in the sea, so... uh, Well, the next time you're allowed to leave your house... uh, I know, I know. Go swim in the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would absolutely love to. It was so lovely to catch up with Ali after all this time. I shall be holding her to that Cornish sea swim when we're all allowed to travel again. If you've any thoughts following today's chat, feel free to tag me on Twitter or Instagram at HowToBreatheSoYouDon'tLookFat or you can email me at HowToBreathePodcast at gmail.com. Between the 1st and the 7th of March in the UK, it's Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And for the podcast, I'm really pleased to have been able to talk to 22-year-old Connor Spratt about his experience recovering from an eating disorder. We talk about how quickly his illness took hold, how those behaviours continue to shape decisions we sometimes take, even when in recovery. And we talk about the importance of young men talking about their experience of eating disorders in order to destigmatize an illness that has never belonged solely to women if you can please do like rate and subscribe to the podcast i'd be extremely grateful not least because it helps more people find us and i'd love to get these chats out to as many as possible for now though thanks to mike hall for editing and music thanks to my guest ali for being utterly brilliant and thank you very much for your time see you next week